ends perhaps, yet known to be that belief which carries, and the deflatory of our foreign forefronted and from behind blood and toil is total and in totality just a bit of a more or less, and the same applies in which our lessities provide for the moreover and so and so's, even in these times. Dot. Shaken up and stirred is a preferential treatment of material for some, as liquid build to replenish and quicken, although thusly replicable in its offset of life's material, and yet to ponder, is our path and ways, splint and curvature for the just so. Dot. Our character theta now in fact joins alpha and beta, though justly at gamma's
Hi. Wow. Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, March 5th, 2021. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco, which is on unceded Ramatouche Ohlone land. For more information, please go to weeklyrev.org. And on our land acknowledgement tab, we have a lot of resources, mutual aid, uh, places for folks to donate, as well as a set of native news outlets, maps, um, and uh, as well as the Sagorate Land Trust page. So please do check that out. I've uh, got, uh, whew, whoa, what a week. Yikes. Uh, I'm feeling pretty frustrated, as I'm sure many people are. Um, I don't know how I can be disappointed with Democrats if I don't have any faith in them in the first place, yet I still am. So that's something I need to work out, obviously. And also, uh, just seeing the folks who denied that COVID was real, getting vaccinated before other folks who kind of need to get vaccinated, that also is uh, pretty frustrating. And again, this is, you know, capitalism and people who are undeserving, I should say, or people who cause harm are somehow come out unscathed. And that's really fucked up. And on a minor note, I don't know what the point of having uh, bike lanes and slow streets is if the cars don't even fucking acknowledge that. And this is, uh, perhaps it's more uh, symbolic of just the way the world is, but uh, on the way here, not very far, a uh, couple of cars in the bike lane, one with the driver just sitting there, one just empty, car just in the bike lane. And I tried to, if folks who are unfamiliar with what it's like to, to bike, in, the, in cities, it, imagine if someone just was on their bike uh, in front of you in traffic, you're driving your car, right? And perhaps this is like, okay, whatever. Say that's like a normal thing. And someone just decides to like, hey, I'm going to get off my bike for a while and leave it in the middle of the street. That's, it's like that, but like frustrating and dangerous on a whole other level because clearly cars are bigger than bikes. And so now then bikes have to either go into the other lane if there's a car blocking our lane. It's just, it's fucking frustrating. And uh, it's uh, it's all about people who either don't know, they don't care, and uh, it's it's frustrating. It's really fucking frustrating, and it's dangerous too. Anyway, oh, and there's so much more to get frustrated about. There's plenty of these anti-trans laws that they're trying to get passed around the country, which target not only trans youth but people who provide care. So they're looking to make felonies out of people who provide health care for children. Yep, that's what's happening. People who have power and money decide to spend their fucking lives making it worse for kids. That's that's what's going on right now. And of course there's a right to be fucking angry about it and just I mean we have so many choices as to uh how we spend our time, I would say. Uh for some of us maybe. And imagine you have the ability to make bills, to make laws, to create to just change the way maybe people interact and then to decide that you, what you're going to do with your fucking time and your power is to spread lies, have a lot of fear-mongering, um, victim blame, and uh, make lives worse for kids. That's what these folks are doing. They're making it a felony to provide uh, health care for trans youth. And they can go fuck themselves, these adults. And I have a lot of... Uh, Images in my mind. I won't necessarily express them over the microphone. However, I have, oh, I'm feeling lots of uh, vengeance, lots of anger. And um, perhaps these people should be named and we should find <laughs> out <laughs> where they live. And I don't think they should be allowed to make laws. They, sh I mean, it's just fucking disgusting. The Clearly, when folks have access to 
affirming health care. It saves lives. It's I, I don't even know. I'm clearly I'm probably you know preaching to the choir. I get that, but the idea that uh, if you deny trans youth affirming health care, that's just going to add to depression and high like the rates of suicide are already high due to transphobia and how people mistreat trans folks. And this is only looking to increase that. So that's one thing that's happening in this fair country. And by fair, I don't mean fucking fair at all. In Jackson, Mississippi, uh, folks are without clean drinking water. It's been weeks. And it's a predominantly um, black community that's without their clean drinking water. So that's happening there as it happened in Flint, Michigan, and in various parts of Texas. Uh, Democrats today, I think, voted against a $15 minimum wage. And $15 isn't even fucking enough. Uh, if we're talking about minimum wage, it should be at least 25 at least, uh, to keep up with inflation. So, And then there are folks who see, think even 15 is not enough, which is just fucked up. And these are, of course, millionaires people who have not lived off minimum wage or even tried to. So that's pretty fucking aggravating. Mentioned last week that uh, the U.S. bombed Syria. That's pretty fucked up. And, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. This is all just, you know, fucking roses and jokes and happy times because we live in this fucking country. Well, I don't know where you're listening from. Perhaps you're li living in another country. And I recognize that every country has its issues. But here in the United States, it's like we're, we're number one at victim blaming and oppressing people and uh, – state violence, where we're really good at it, I should say. And I, I include the we because even though I don't approve of it or condone it, I still live here, and the very least I can do is speak about it. But, ugh. I was at a... A lot of places are closing down. Oh, I don't know why I'm just going on this depressive route, but that's kind of... I'm reporting what's going on. Uh, the Revolution Cafe in San Francisco is closing. That's sad. I heard Muddy Waters uh, is closing. That's also sad. And... You know, like when there's fewer independent places, it's just it's gonna be like all commercialized. And I think about St. Mark's in in New York and how it's just the commercialization of spaces and the privatization of spaces and who makes all the money. It's just fucking gross. I was going to say, let's see, I was thinking about Revolution Cafe. There's another there's another piece I was going to get to, and perhaps I will remember it. But yeah, there's just a lot to be frustrated about. <sighs> well, I have a lot of uh, news stories here that we'll share today. Democrats. Oh, yes. Coffee for the People, which is a place I like and I will promote because I like them. It's over in the Hate. Um, I believe it's on Masonic and Hate. And uh, they have – some of their tables are outside, or at least one table's outside, and they have a lot of anti-war uh, imagery on there. And I, I took a photo yesterday of an unfortunate – I mean, it's an outdated image, but I did want to share it, at least read it to the listeners out here. Let me bring up this photo, and I will share it also on our uh, page, which you can find at weeklyrev.org. Yeah, now's the time to say, hey, go to weeklyrev.org. We've got uh, – no, no show notes from the last year or so, and then links to shows from the past six or seven years. So they have an image here. Uh, places that the U.S. has bombed since World War II. Now, this is uh, unfortunate. Uh, I mean, it's it needs to be updated, which sucks. So it's a picture of a plane that says USA, 
and on each of these bombs it has a uh, name of a country so we got congo korea iran indonesia uh, cambodia el salvador china granada laos guatemala sudan somalia panama bosnia afghanistan iraq nicaragua libya peru lebanon vietnam kuwait cuba did I say Iran already? Iran. And we'll add Syria to that. And I'm sure there are more, unfortunately, that I am forgetting. So that's really fucked up. It's a great use of fucking money is to uh, kill people. That's great. That's awesome. Fantastic. Wonderful. What a dumb world. Anyway, um, are there positive things? Yes, there are. There are because uh, if this were our, if it were all just this negative stuff, then we you know we wouldn't be here. Well, I wouldn't be here. I'd be like, what's the point? But there are folks who have for generations been organizing and there are ways that folks can show up and I like to continue perhaps you're listening for the first time in case hi and this is probably a little bit more of a depressing opening than I'm used to but still please listen because there are positive things that folks can do to show up whether it's going to a rally donating money to causes spreading the word pushing back against propaganda there are so many different ways that for folks to show up and so that's um, acknowledging what's going on and also a response to that to help us feel less helpless yeah Cool. Also, start off playing some awesome punk music from a band called The Crunch Push-Ups. We'll be playing some more music from them throughout the program. Thanks to Kangs for sharing this music with me. Very cool. I like it a lot. I'll play more as we go along. Okay. Ooh, song called Bring Me the Head of John Hughes. I think uh, we need to listen to this. So let me get this up and going, and we'll be back with some more news stories uh, in a bit.
I voted police day. And we'll have hear more music as we go along. Did want to share some articles as well as upcoming events. Uh, first upcoming event, well, I should say first, but one that's coming up soon is on s this Sunday, March 7th at 6 p.m. Pacific time to 7.15 Pacific time. It's a queer and trans take on the prison industrial complex, abolition, and the roots of modern day policing. This is an online event and it's free. And it's by Flying Over Walls. It's a San Francisco Bay Area Black and Pink group. And there is a link on Facebook with all that information. And I'll share a little bit about the event. Flying Over Walls uh, would like to invite you to our upcoming webinar, A Queer and Trans Take on the Prison Industrial Complex, Abolition, and the Roots of Modern Day Policing on Sunday, March 7th from 6 to 7.15 p.m. We will discuss the history of the criminalization of LGBTQ identities, the impact of mass incarceration on our community, and the racist history of policing in the U.S. We'll also take the opportunity to tell you more about Flying Over Walls and how you can get involved with us and other local organizations focused on prison abolition. We look forward to having you with us. So this is an event that's on Facebook. You can find it by typing in the title, A Queer and Trans Take on the Prison Industrial Complex. And we'll also share a link on our page, weeklyrev.org. Cool. Okay, also on Sunday, March 7th, earlier in the day, there is a rally, Free Malik, Kick Geo Group Out of Cali, Stop for Profit Prisons. And this is Sunday, March 7th, from noon to 2 p.m. Pacific time. It's a protest um, organized by the Malik Washington Defense Committee. This is happening at 111 Taylor Street in San Francisco. San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper editor Malik Washington is being severely retaliated against for releasing a public memo documenting a preventable COVID outbreak at 111 Taylor, an enormous geo group owned halfway house in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. The $2 billion plus for-profit prison company ugh, stole his phone and put a gag order on him in what is the most egregious attack on journalism and Malik's constitutional right to freedom of speech. They are now threatening to send him back to jail and Malik has sued and they have more information. Uh, there's some articles on 48 Hills. So I'll click on one of these 
articles, and we'll share these on our webpage as well. There's an article from Tim Redman from January 11th and a few others as well. And let's go back to the uh, original piece we're reading here. And the articles from uh, the main article I'm reading from is from IndieBay, and we'll provide a link at weeknewrev.org. For an excellent documentary expose on the atrocious dehumanizing conditions at 111 Taylor Street, please view the 11-minute documentary put forth by the San Francisco Public Defenders, uh, the Adachi Project. Oh, yes, we mentioned this uh, last week. Uh, it's, you can find it at wearedefender.com forward slash 111-Taylor, and I will play the audio of this uh, in a moment. Geo Group is fighting Malik, but they are also currently litigating against AB32, which would ban private detention facilities in California, arguing that they would lose $15 million per year to uh, in revenue. Uh, with a large portion coming from caging our siblings in abusive ICE detention facilities across the state. We say no to putting profits over people every single time. For-profit prison companies have no place in California or anywhere. Join us for a masked-up, socially distanced rally at 111 Taylor Street, San Francisco, from noon to 2 p.m. on Sunday, March 7th, to demand Malik Washington's freedom to stop the attack on black journalism and to shout to the rooftops, Geo Group, get out of California. This rally is being organized by the Malik Washington Defense Committee to donate to his legal fees and to support black radical journalism. Please donate here, and they have a link on Fundraiser, and we'll share this information also on our website, weeklyrev.org. So I'm going to go ahead and play the, this 11-minute video. I mentioned it, I believe, last week. So this will just be the audio, but if you'd like to see the video as well, you can find it at, again, wearedefender.com forward slash 111-Taylor. So this will be the audio. And I'm just pausing it so I can read the caption here. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. That's from Brian Peters. My parole agent thought it was a good idea to put me in 111 Taylor Street. It's transitional housing in the Tenderloin District. And... He told me, just consider it your apartment. You have more freedom where you can walk around and go in and out whenever you want. Kind of. They set count times. This is what time chow is. And you get in and out of the building through passes. I guess these people are banking on the fact that if you're not used to freedom, they don't have to really give it to you. I'm going to make one last pass downstairs to the fed floor and the dining room and see if I can document what it looks like inside of this place. Okay. You could get a two-man room. There was even a 14-man room with three bathrooms. I'm in the six-man room with one bathroom. remember having a meeting when this first started happening. Someone said, are we getting masks? And the assistant CEO, he said, oh, you don't need masks. 
unless you already had coronavirus. The beginning of all this, now we weren't allowed to wear masks. That's one of the conditions of my parole, is I can't wear a mask. As soon as there was a hint of the virus, the parole agents stopped coming to 111 Taylor. We've been doing any dealings with the parole officers over the telephone, and that's been minimal. Okay, right now I'm in my room and I'm filming a gentleman that's been here for a year. And now that his time is up, it's time for him to go during the pandemic. And 111 Taylor didn't really set up anything for you, did they? Nope. And they don't care where you go? No. And we're in the middle of shelter in place, but you have to be out of here by today because they need the bed. Yes. I was lucky to get someplace because they weren't even letting us out to find someplace to live or to talk to some transportation about moving and stuff. They're not even letting us out for that kind of pass to look for uh, a job or a place to live. So this is the day room, obviously. No social distancing. There might be 10 of us in this room. I'm close enough to touch the person next to me, and I'm all the way in the corner. They were having us clean certain surfaces every night, and then now we're wearing masks, but, you know, there's not a lot of hand-washing. Saturday, I arrived and I couldn't help but notice it was an EMT out front. They were putting someone in the ambulance, but they were wearing these really weird blue aprons. No one officially told me, but they took someone out of there that had tested positive. Maybe two more days went by and I noticed there was another gentleman who was no longer there. They don't tell you anything. You look around and you go, oh, who's missing? Mr. Four is one of my, you know, we try to call these rooms, but we kind of feel like his cells. He's one of my cellmates out of the six people that live in this room. Quite recently, we discovered that somebody tested positive for the virus. And now that person is actually back in the building. Back in the building. Hold on one second. We have one confirmed positive case. And believe you when I tell you this, there's no such thing as just one confirmed case. There's more. They just ain't confirmed them yet. How many, we don't know. But let's put him back in the building with the other people because, well, I ain't figured that one out yet either. I guess, you know. Something happens to one of us, it's no big loss to society. But I came here thinking I had a safe haven. It was nice. I'm out of prison. Oh, my God. It, it couldn't be.
that bad. Well, that was wrong. Yesterday we were supposedly going to all be tested because it's a confirmed case. At least one. There's no movement outside of the building. We're all waiting. So I'm going to take a little stroll down the hallway. We're all waiting. Waiting. And waiting. Uh, nobody running the ship in the office. Uh, we had the Department of Health come yesterday and just do a walkthrough. So now we're all crammed into smaller spaces because they just kicked everybody out of the day room when there were too many people in here to begin with. Take it all out, wipe it down. Yeah, wipe it down. Someone asked me, is that the residents sterilizing with no gloves and spray bottles and paper towels? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah. They said, that's not how that goes. No. Protocol, the health department comes in, sterilizes the room, sets up, and then they know they're in a sterile environment. Well, just thinking that, that what you're saying makes so much sense because if we have COVID, then we're the ones wiping the COVID on the COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you can't yeah. laugh, you gotta cry because this shit's funny, I'm telling you. Turk and Taylor outside. They kind of, kind of do this on the stealth for the next count time. On Wednesday, we were all tested at about 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. Took our cell phone numbers and told us that there would uh, be a phone call with all of our results. Thursday, I noticed that uh, the staff was buzzing around like crazy, and it didn't take a genius to see them in their white uh, paper jumpsuits we realized that some of the results had come back and people were one by one testing positive. There was one guy, then there were four people. And before the night was over, there wound up being seven people. As you can see, quarantine there. Four people quarantine here. The big problem is the seven people that tested positive, they put them in that 14-man room with seven other people that were not positive. And when I got up in the morning and came out and looked at all the little posters saying which rooms have been quarantined, it was 12 people. At that point, it's obviously spreading. 12 out of 80 people is only going to get worse. So on that um, on Friday, which was yesterday, I left there. I didn't take all my stuff, but I just took what I could because I had to slip out unnoticed. And once I got outside, I called my parole agent, and I explained to him that uh, 
people were getting sick and it was spreading and it was gonna get worse and I'm 64 years old, African-American, high blood pressure, all things that I've read that are, are making me more susceptible to the virus. Yesterday I was willing to risk being, uh, having a parole violation even though I, I'm not doing anything wrong, I'm trying to stay alive and stay uninfected. I was willing to risk that for my health. I'm gonna give a call and talk to some more people tomorrow and find out what the update is on uh, 111 Taylor. Okay, thanks. Group, a multi billion dollar corporation operating out of prisons, immigration detention centers, and halfway houses. Um, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and the Federal Bureau of Prisons award contracts to the Geo Group and pay it on a per person basis, incentivizing the Geo Group for higher occupancy rates. The Geo Group has recently come under fire for exposing residents to significant health risks and failing to manage the spread of COVID. by the people, defended by Defender from Justice We Rise. And uh, Defender is created by the Adachi Project, a partnership between the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, Evan Odd, and Compound, honoring the legacy of the late San Francisco Public Defender, Jeff Adachi. Again, you can find us at wearedefender.com, and we'll also post links to this on our website at weeklyrev.org. Let's take another bit of a music break, and then we're back with more, so please do stay tuned.
wanted to push up with uh, Let's Get Physical. When I first saw the title, I thought it was a cover of the Olivia Newton-John song, and I was incorrect. And we're back. We've got more stories. We've got a lot of articles. I'm debating whether or not I'm up for sharing a lot of articles. I definitely will post them. However, in terms of me reading, um, I appreciate hearing other folks share their thoughts. So I thought I would click on a video here of a previous um, presentation. And this is also from Black and Pink, who will be having the workshop on this Sunday. And this is called uh, um, Opportunity Campus, which is happening in uh, Omaha. So I thought I would just share a little bit about this. Um, we have a link also for this. Go to blackandpink.org. Oh, it's about the Black and Pink uh, uh, organization. So I'm going to go back and uh, <laughs> uh, share this video. This is uh, Opportunity Campus, a Facebook Live conversation with Dominique Morgan. So you can find this on the website, uh, blackandpink.org. This is about 26 minutes. Hello, and also, everyone. I'm also going to mention that there's uh, closed captioning on this video, as there was on the Women Love and Thriller documentary that we played. So uh, here we go. Hello, everyone. Um, happy Sunday. Um, I am really excited to connect with everyone this afternoon. Um, my name is Dominique Morgan. I am the executive director of Black and Pink National. and on this Sunday afternoon, I'm coming to you all to talk about some important issues that have pledged our community for as long as we've had community and an exciting initiative that Black and Pink is going to launch that we believe will be a catalyst to dismantle the ways these systems impact young people and position us to radically change the experience of youth and families in the system and, and, and the idea and the probability of young folk, folks who have been system impacted thriving in our communities every day. Um, I have been the executive director of Black and Pink for three years now. It has been one of the most life altering experiences I've ever had. Working with our chapters all across the country, being able to engage daily in solidarity efforts with our inside members, nearly 20,000 strong all across the US, working in partnership thought leadership with our national staff that we are, as of tomorrow, March 1st, will be 17 black and pink staff members that are um, working for black and pink national all across the US. It's been a privilege, but I have to be honest and say that so much of my work, so many of the ideas that I've been able to activate at black and pink have come from my own lived experience. As a black trans woman who um, navigated the juvenile system from the age of 13 to 17, there was a year of homelessness, of survival crimes, of survival sex work in the community from the age of 17 to 18. And then in August of 2000, I was arrested in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, spent about a year in county jail and nearly nine years in the Nebraska Department of Corrections. I not only understand what the halls, what the beds, what the offices, what the sound of uh, chains on your feet feel and sound like and how that can bring the fear and the uh, uncertainty to many bodies, especially black and brown bodies. But I'm privileged to say that I know how to beat that system 
and come on the other side and be able to establish a life that I'm very proud of and that I'm proud to say has been able to impact other lives. I don't want that journey to be up to chance. I don't want someone to have to uh, bet on them caring about them the way folks have cared about me or, or, or roll the dice on people thinking that they have potential because that whole thing about potential, right, is subjective. I want everyone having as much access and possibility to touch, to hold, to, to be steeped in their greatness as possible because I believe that's what we deserve. As human beings, whatever we dream of, I believe we deserve to touch it. I believe we, we need to work for it, but I also know we live in a world that for many people, no matter how hard you work for your dream, your goal, due to systems of oppression, due to the, the way that we established the, Uni the United States specifically, black and brown folks are going to keep their dream in their head. That's if we as a community don't kill it for them by telling them what's possible and what's not possible. I am my own living dream. I, I believe I'm the wildest dream of, of my ancestors, of my community, of my loved ones. And so when I uh, brought up the idea of starting Lighting House, which we are proud to have celebrated one year of Lighting House on February 16th, it was absolutely yes. We need to house and we need to find spaces for trans and gender non-conforming and LGBTQ plus folks in general who have been system impacted to where they can live in a space that feels like a home. It doesn't feel like a shelter. It doesn't feel like a compromise of where their body is at where they are excited to come there at the end of the day, where they feel like I wanna invite my family here, where I can establish community in this space. And through the pandemic, with the help of Andrew Alleman, our Director of Programs for Black and Pink National, Dusty Gin, our Director of, of, of Communications and Grants, and our programs team, honestly, everybody overall, but I, I wanted to make sure that I acknowledge Andrew and Dusty because Andrew spent every day last year at Lighting House. And many days we were there together, sitting at the table in the living room, figure out how do we open up this initiative in the middle of a pandemic? How do we not only serve the folks who will be at Lighting House, but how do we activate our reach nationally? And so I'm proud to say Lighting House is thriving. Right now, um, there are three Black queer folks, two of them are trans-identified in Lighting House who are being employed, who are spending time with their families, who are asking themselves hard questions, who are finding out incredible, brilliant answers, and who are able to tap into, again, the Black and Pink staff, but our network across the country. I would possibly say that was enough for me if I wasn't a person that like, didn't like to maybe overfill my plate. Um, but this overfilling of my plate is necessary, I believe. When I came into Black and Pink, we were nationally known, globally known, as an incredible abolitionist agency. And I'm proud to say we've been able to maintain and evolve that identity. I also believe, and the founder of Black and Pink, Jason Lydon, said at the Lydon House Ribbon Cutting last February, that a way to dismantle the system is by starving the system. How do we make sure that the system does not have access to the bodies, the minds, and the spirits that it lives off of? And that changed something in me that day. I thought Lighting House was an answer, 
but hearing Jason say that, I knew it was an answer. And if, you, if you're listening to me, I'm saying it's an answer. It's not the answer. We're talking about dealing with one of the largest systems to ever impact our community, mass incarceration. So one answer is not enough, right? But I believe we've brought an answer to the table. When we look at the experience of youth in the system, I had expected that nearly 25 years later, after, I've entered, after I had entered the system as a 13-year-old, the stories, the experiences would be different. They're not. We are hearing the same barriers for youth and families to feel like they can connect, to feel like they're supported in integration, to feel like young people come out of the system better than they went into the system. And I use that line better because that's what the system says, right? Is that um, these parents aren't equipped to raise these young people, that these young people have something wrong with them. I don't believe any of those things are true. I believe that yes, young people have parents, whether biologically or otherwise, but I believe that there is a community accountability to raising young people. And when we look at the experience of young people who identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum, I believe that community component is that much more essential. And so I thought, I dreamed, I wondered, I talked with, I challenged, I interrogated an idea, and I'm here today to tell you all about it. Black and Pink tomorrow will activate our capital campaign to open Opportunity Campus in Omaha, Nebraska. Opportunity Campus will be a space that is going to radically change the experience of system-impacted young people and their families across the United States. We are so proud to be able to pull a team together and pull ideas together that we believe are going to create a weapon to dismantle this system, but we need a big weapon. 43% of LGBTQ plus youth experience homelessness or have been forced out of their homes due to conflicts with their families about their sexuality or their gender. 62% of LGBTQ plus youth experience homelessness and report experiencing uh, physical assault while navigating homelessness. And 38% of LGBTQ plus youth experiencing homelessness um, also report experiencing sexual assault. As an abolitionist agency, we want to look at transformation, restoration, and opportunity at every intersection. And so it made sense to call this space Opportunity Campus. This space is located on the corner of uh, 25th and Evans in Omaha, Nebraska, um, a historically black neighborhood, um, a neighborhood that I walked the streets of as a child. It's in the neighborhood association that my grandfather founded. I, I worked in the community gardens a block from where Opportunity Campus will be. And this space will be able to support 10 system impacted young people who are in the age group of 19 or 24 with housing opportunities in, this, in, in this, these beautiful uh, housing spaces. And then we're going to be able to support 15 to 20 additional system impacted youth and adults and their families through our other wraparound services on the early end of our programming. What also excites me about this space for Opportunity Campus is that we will have the housing component that is going to be able to drastically expand what we're able to do in supporting young people, 
but the larger building, the, the current space that people would identify as a church, um, has endless opportunities from community space to be able to make sure that the, the folks who are the elderly in our community that are in the Evans Towers right across the street will have an opportunity to engage with the young folks in our population, families, folks just dropping in and, and, and being a part. In, in the experience of COVID last summer, so many folks at, at one of the darkest parts of that experience, they needed community. What I can say about the LGBTQ plus experience, even adults, even the adults who, you know, we have the most access, it's our community that makes our life worth living, that makes our life exciting. We're so excited to be able to activate a space at Opportunity Campus where we can bring folks together just to bring them together. We also know that 56% of LGBTQ plus youth in foster care have spent time without stable housing because they felt safer in the street than at group homes or foster care, right? And so many folks who work in juvenile justice identify group homes and foster care as alternatives to detention. But what I believe is true and what I've heard from so many young people is that anything outside of a space you identify as your home is, is being placed in confinement. LGBTQ plus youth in foster care are also less likely than their non-LGBTQ plus peers to find a permanent home. We know that people who, who foster young people, who adopt young people, it's a beautiful, a beautiful way to show up as community. But we their desires, the things that excite them about being a parent to a young person. And so many people, when they are a biological parent, of an LGBTQ plus youth struggle with that identity and with the truth that lie inside of this young person. So we know that's going to take effect for folks who are volunteering, volunteering and some people with great intentions and some people with not the best intentions to, to house these young people, to steward these young people, to raise these young people. You're looking at the housing building um, uh, for the Opportunity Campus. This is a duplex. Um, there are five apartments on each side, and the, the beautiful part is once we um, raise the initial $300,000 to purchase the land, we'll have access to these apartments immediately. And so that is one of the huge catalysts for us pushing forward the way we are is that to get this land is there based on the community we have and based on the reach we've invested in and we've cultivated and we know that it's going to meet an immediate need and so that in itself it's rare for you to uh, launch an initiative and immediately see the impact of that initiative and so that will be a truth for us with acquiring the land and the buildings that will be opportunity campus in omaha nebraska so many people um, also say, well, why Opportunity Campus? Why Omaha, Nebraska? You know, Dominique, you just, are you just gonna keep activating things in your hometown? Why Opportunity Campus? Because 20% of all youth in juvenile incarcerated facilities are LGBTQ+. 39% of all girls in juvenile incarceration facilities are LGBTQ+. And 85% of LGBTQ plus youth who are in juvenile incarceration identify as young folks of color, black or, 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 or uh, black or folks of color, right? So 85% of the LGBTQ plus population look like me, look like my siblings, 
right? And so on the last day of Black History Month, when we've had so many incredible moments and so many incredible conversations, I ask us, what are we doing the center of lift and, and stand on the power of youth? How are we as communities supporting young people in leading us to the answer that is going to push them to their, their definition of liberation? Why Omaha, Nebraska? I believe Omaha has, Omaha has one of the most beautiful um, communities that center around fundraising, around human services, around nonprofit experience that I've, I've ever encountered. I also want you all to understand that the land for Opportunity Campus in New York, in Atlanta, in LA, we wouldn't be able to even think about what that number is like, right? Also, Omaha is the center of the country, and I've, although we have some hard work to do on our definition of the heartland, I do believe that there's power in the Midwest. By providing affirming spaces for youth and, and creating spaces where they can experience love, support, being nurtured, I believe we're going to disrupt these systems that harm youth and families, that have harmed youth and families, that, hire, that harmed my young body, that, that, that disrupted the, the relationship I've had with my siblings that I'm just now seeing improvement in, that took away 20 years of my experience with my mother and father and the community. And I am not living a singular story. We're seeing it over and over and over again. We want to create solutions based in the power, the strength, the, the grandeur, and the, the beauty of young people. And Opportunity Campus will be that. Opportunity Campus will do that. I believe it. I've dreamed it. And so we're here. This is, again, the, the larger building um, that's right on the corner of 25th and Evans. This building is so expansive. And the opportunities for what we can do there are endless. I have an ultimate dream of launching a school in this space, of having areas for other organizations to be housed, to be able to impact their work. Young folks who engage in music, young folks who engage in dance, anything that will allow our young people to look in their reflection and smile and see, see the glow that I see in the young people I walk past every day. Opportunity Campus will be a nexus of, of, of what can be, of what should be, and a way for communities all across the country to come together and know that by investing in Opportunity Campus, you will inherently be changing the experience of young people in our communities and investing in young people in our communities. There are times that we make decisions and we, we financially support things, we physically support things, we verbally support things with our, with our, with our uh, reach, and we hope that there's impact. I can tell you by engaging in a solidarity effort with Black and Pink for us to launch Opportunity Campus, you will 100% know you are changing the communities that we all live in every day. So we are also going to have drop-in services. Um, we're going to have mental health support, um, hot meals, a food pantry, laundry, um, community programming that's going to amplify the experience of our youth, but also making sure that we are acknowledging and affirming that their parents, their families, their found families are essential to their success. We take young people from their families, from their safe spaces, 
and we assume that when we reintegrate them that that happens naturally and it doesn't. So we are going to do the work to make sure that no matter what's happening with young people at Opportunity Campus, the trusted adults in their lives are involved. You are going to see us talk about this a lot in the next month um, to get us to um, our $300,000 goal. April 2nd of 2021 is the deadline for us to raise $300,000 to purchase Opportunity Campus. I need everyone. I need all hands on deck because this is, I believe many of the hard things I've experienced in my life were training me to think about and understand what does it take to make sure that people can be loved and seen. I believe Light and House was a tool to do that. And I absolutely believe Opportunity Campus is going to be a tool that brings us closer to a space of liberation for folks who have been system, system impacted in our communities. I also want to say that there are many ways for you to engage. One, share all the things on social media from our Twitter to our Instagram, um, our Facebook, LinkedIn, share, talk about it. Um, there is a link for you to start engaging in supporting us with the capital campaign. There is also going to be a rollout in the next 24 to 48 hours for you to become an ambassador for Opportunity Campus, where you will be able to sign up to fundraise your own micro campaign with the folks that you are connected to. We understand we're in the middle of a pandemic still, that we are not post-COVID, no matter how many folks have had access to the vaccine. There are many folks who don't have access, who deserve it, who want it, and there are many people who don't want access, and we need to respect people's autonomy over their bodies. But we are looking for every way possible for you to activate and engage in your community, in your reach, and to be a catalyst for change for young people and families in the United States by helping us launch Opportunity Campus in Omaha, Nebraska. So make sure that you sign up as an ambassador for Opportunity Campus. There's going to be great gifts and giveaways that we are, we are investigating, that we're de developing, that we hope will let you know we appreciate you but also uh, give you an opportunity to show the world that you are in this solidarity fight for young people and families, uh, specifically young people and families who identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And we're going to give you all timed updates about what we're doing. And we're very proud to work with Blair Freeman, um, these two incredible black women that are making history in Nebraska for us to acquire the space, to build the space. Um, you'll see on some of these slides, they're kind of the shiny, really pretty renderings. Um, the $300,000 cost of Opportunity Campus is for us to acquire the space. There's about a $1.2 million price tag for us to, that would be inclusive of the 300 to acquire the space and then to develop the sanctuary space where we would put our kitchen and our community-based spaces. And that will roll out in sections. Right now, we want to acquire the space because as I said before, as soon as we get this building, as soon as we get this land, we'll be able to house 10 young people um, who we know are in dire need of those opportunities. Um, so, so make sure that you all stay connected to us. We're going to make sure you are informed. There's been videos that have been filmed that will be rolling out so much information. Myself and my team are going to be, dispo uh, uh, going to be accessible to you all via social media and other forms. So any questions you have, 
make sure you reach out to us um, because this hasn't been something that happened overnight. I'm proud to say we spent nearly a year talking about this and investigating where we would go and, and what is best for community, what are personal feelings, how does it align to the black and pink mission and our values. And so we are here today presenting to you this well thought out, deeply personally invested project that I am happy to lead as the executive director of Black and Pink National. So it's Sunday, make sure that you all share this information, make sure that you all are talking to your people about it and make sure that you plug in with us. Go to the bit.ly link that should be that will be found in our description that will allow you to donate immediately and then look for in the next 24 to 48 hours um, the ways for you to sign up as a ambassador for Opportunity Campus to be able to launch your own mini campaign uh, that will um, give you all sorts of information to inform your community, photos, language. We're going to give you all the tools you need to run with it. I promise you that. Um, we just want you to show up for us and we're going to do our part. This, this relationship will be reciprocal. I promise that. And, and because of this reciprocity, we're going to create something beautiful for young people. And, um, I've done a lot of things in my life. I've done a lot of things in my career, but I've never been as excited as I am to enter into this project. And I'm so excited to do it with my team at National that are incredible. I would not be able to do what I do every day without my team at Black and Pink National. So thank you to all of the Black and Pink National staff, to our Black and Pink National Board of Directors for supporting me in my leadership, in my, at sometimes what seem like zany ideas, but believing in my passion and my ingenuity and my innovation, to the funders who have already shown up for us, to the individuals who have independently supported us, um, to our black and pink chapters all across the country um, that do the work in the streets, um, in the cities, bringing opportunity, bringing answers, bringing tools of joy, of liberation to their individual communities. And to anyone who's ever shown up for black and pink in any way, I'm so thankful. Without that support, we would not be here on the last day of Black History Month in 2021 telling you about a project that, that we believe is gonna change our entire country. Because of all those things, we are here. And I want you to stay here. And I want you to maintain not only how you've been here, but I'm asking you to amp it up. So go get your Red Bull, eat your Wheaties, do whatever you need to do, because we've got some work to do. And this work is going to change the experience of youth and families in our communities all over the United States. And um, that's, a, that's the type of thing that, that's the type of thing that lets you know that everything is worth it. So thank you for spending time with me on Sunday. I know there's things going on. Is the football still happening? I don't know. There's, there's some, I'm sure there's sports something. You know, the football thing was, the, the, the anthem was a couple weeks ago. Football thing is done. I know there's sports things, there's dinners, there's family things. There's, I'm just sleeping, I'm resting. So if you join me now, or if you're watching this another time, I just want to thank you for your time. And um, I'll be seeing you all soon um, because this is, um, this is life work for me. So thank you for supporting me and doing my life work as the executive director of Black and Pink. Thank you for joining me this afternoon and thank you for supporting us, period. Have a great Sunday.
and I will see you on the other side of this at Opportunity Campus. All right, so that was Dominique Morgan, and you can find this video with subtitles over at blackandpink.org. There's a few more videos there as well. I'm going to play some music, and this is from another band I haven't heard yet, so looking forward to listening to this. And again, if you'd like to have your music played on the show, please do feel free to get in touch. You can follow me on Twitter, at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-N-E-R. It's a band called uh, Death Check. They were from... Wettigen, Germany. Uh, this is 98.99. Uh, this is the LP known as Death Check Can Dance. And we'll play a few songs here.
few news articles here. I'll be reading some headlines and stuff too. So uh, just feeling uh, whew, a lot, feeling a feeling a lot. So let's get started from the San Francisco San Diego Union Tribune, uh, San Diego County to make inmate phone calls free. This came out on March second by Dr. Kelly Davis. The county jails had been charging up to thirty-three cents a minute for local calls and two dollars for voicemail. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously Tuesday to make phone calls in county-run jails and juvenile detention centers free because a portion of the fees associated with those calls goes to San Diego County Sheriff's Department for inmate services, roughly $2.8 million a year. The vote also asked county staff to identify funding to replace lost revenue. Supervisor Tara Lawson Weiner introduced the proposal in an interview last week with the San Diego Union Tribune. She said it was morally wrong for the county to be generating revenue from inmate phone calls, especially since research shows that incarcerated people who are able to maintain connections to friends and family are less likely to reoffend after they are released from custody. All of those human connections are just so vital, Dr. Raymer said, especially for children of jail protectors. Research also has found that high phone costs disproportionately impact jailhouse families and penalize people who have not been convicted of crime. Roughly 70% of people in San Diego jails are awaiting trial, Lawson Weiner said. Currently, calls from jails and juvenile detention centers in San Diego County range from 21 cents per minute for prepaid interstate calls to 33 cents per minute for local and interstate conversations. Voicemail messages cost $2, and 20-minute video visits cost $2.50, down from $5 before the pandemic, which has halted in-person visits. In addition to high per-minute costs, fees are tacked on for services like adding money to an inmate's phone account. Dozens of people called in to the Board of Supervisors meeting Tuesday to express support for Lawson Weiner's proposal. Many described struggles they or others have faced trying to afford to keep in touch with incarcerated loved ones. Priscilla Alvarez, whose brother is in jail, said he often must choose between calling his family or purchasing necessities like stamps and toiletries from the commissary. Karen O'Connor, whose son was jailed in 2019, told the Union Tribune that free phone calls can be a lifeline for people struggling with incarceration. I can't help but wonder how many inmates might not have attempted or succeeded in suicide if they had more access to their families via phone, she said, or how many who are frustrated by the system and ultimately get in more trouble while incarcerated could have been reassured by a family member on the phone and de-escalated. Since 2012, the Sheriff's Department has contracted with uh, Securus Technologies, one of the largest providers of jail phone services to the in the U.S. Under the contract, the department is guaranteed nearly $2.8 million a year, about $140,000 of which goes to the probation department, which operates the county's juvenile detention centers. The rest of that money goes into the department's inmate welfare fund, which pays for educational programs and welfare packs for indigent inmates at CSA. And I'm also going to make a point here um, on, say, incarcerated people. 
in the past, the sheriff's department has opposed cutting the cost of phone calls, but spokesperson uh, Lieutenant Ricardo Lopez told the Union Tribune last week that the sheriff recognizes the positive impact phone calls ha can have on incarcerated people and is committed to working with the county to find a way to replace lost phone revenue. San Diego would be uh, the second county in California to make phone calls from detention centers free following San Francisco. In August 2018, New York became the first city in the U.S. to make jail phone calls free. The state also is taking measures to cut phone call costs in prisons. On Monday, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation announced that its new contract with communications provider DTL will cut the cost of its phone calls to 25 cents per minute for local calls and 18.5 cents per minute for calls outside of funds to provide uh, adequate housing and uh, health care and food and education um, options for people I think would be uh, far beneficial to having prisons. However, I don't want to uh, talk. I mean, I'm glad this is definitely a step in the right direction, but I don't want to talk about housing for people that are in prison. And again, sign this uh, San Diego contract. How am I tired and it's only 1.30? How did this happen? More punk rock to wake me up, perhaps. I did want to get to some more articles, and again, as I've mentioned before, this is merely a drop in the bucket. These are just articles I've come across in the past week, mostly within the last few days. And we do the show just to share news stories that might not make it to mainstream or corporate media, and really just to share more of what's happening and actual uh, issues that are impacting society and push back against a lot of injustice. Um, some positive news story here is, and again, unfortunately, sometimes the, the positive news stories are when people uh, push back against something that shouldn't be happening. Uh, it's this weird thing where I really wish we lived in a world where folks wouldn't have to push back against it if it didn't exist in the first place. However, grateful for folks who are taking action. And this is uh, a tweet from uh, Salam Hamilton. First, I'll share an image of this or a link to this. Indigenous youth have shut down the port of Vancouver in solidarity with imprisoned elder Stacy Gallagher, who was sentenced to 90 days in jail for his work standing against TMX. Hashtag no pipelines. Hashtag no consent. And this was on March 2nd, 2021. And we'll um, share uh, a link to this tweet on our webpage. And next up, I did want to share another article and this talks a little bit about how there's just so much fear mongering among trans folks and it's fucking disgusting uh from mother jones there's an article the real threat to women's sports isn't trans athletes it's sexually predatory coaches and anyone who uh has been paying attention knows that that's for damn sure and this came out on february 26 2021 and it's written by abigail weinberg i'll read a bit of this if not all of it see how i feel uh, the February 26, 2021 passage of the Equality Act in the U.S. House of Representatives piqued conservatives into a moral panic. The bill, which would ban discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, had a terrifying potential for Republicans, the presence of trans girls in high school sports. There was House Minority Leader, I'm not even going to read what Kevin McCarthy said because he's a fucking asshole, and I'm not going to quote his nonsense. And awful. So uh, all this language of the need to quote-unquote protect the need to root out uh, other children from bathrooms and locker rooms is hard to square with reality. 
as with the introduction of bathroom bills, uh, the anti-trans argument is a red herring. It is another example of conservatives standing uh, athwart progressive social change in the name of protecting children, long a hallmark of right-wing reactionary politics. But it is also particularly infuriating because all this effort has been summoned on a day when actual women in sports were in the news for being harmed. While legislature, well, excuse me, while legislators on the House floor were pontificating about the demise of women's sports, another story was unfolding. Yesterday, John Gettert, head coach of the 2012 gold medal women's Olympic gymnastics team, committed suicide in Michigan. He had just been charged with human trafficking and sex crimes against girls as young as, as 13. None of the members of Congress have commented on that from what I've seen. Getter was a longtime friend of Larry Nasser, the convicted rapist who was accused of assaulting 265 girls as young as six. His victims included Olympic gold medal gymnasts Michaela Maroney, Ali Reisman, and Simone Biles. Nasser admitted to sexually abusing girls at the Twi uh, Twisters Gymnastics Club owned by Gild Gettert. Abusive coaches are nothing new, and it's not only sexual abuse. In 2019, Mary Kane, the youngest American runner to make a world championships team, accused Nike coach Alberto Salazar of physical and psychological abuse that ruined her career. A business insider story from last year details the psychological abuse female college athletes from a variety of sports say they experience at the hands of their coaches. And last August, Texas Tech fired two of its women basketball coaches after accusations surfaced of physical, mental, and verbal abuse. This abuse, of course, is not limited to women either. Among the most notorious abusers in the sports world is Jerry Sandusky, the Penn State assistant football coach who, in 2012, was found guilty of sexually assaulting 10 boys. Joe Paterno, the head coach who ignored reports of Sandusky's abuse, was fired and died of cancer months later. As scandal after scandal emerges about the pervasive abuse of young athletes, it's time we reevaluate our priorities. Trans athletes aren't the problem. That is putting it mildly. Uh, it seems like a lot of these cis men are the problem. Fuckers. Okay. Ugh. How about some uh, punk music? Because I'm feeling pretty fucking angry. Yeah. All right. So I believe we're up to song number four here. Let me try this one this time here. Oh. Looks like we'll have to go back a little bit here and playing. One moment. So again, this is from a band called Death Check. And let's see here. I think we're having a little bit of technical difficulties, as is known. As often as there are uh, cars in the bike lane, there are technical difficulties here. So, and it's really just about the computer, I think, than anything else. So let's go back and see if we can play some music from the first band we were playing, uh, the Crunch Push-Ups. This is called Track 8.
second best tech play in here. And the first song in the uh, in Throwing the Breaks was from the Crunch Push-Ups. Got a few more headlines and upcoming events to share with you all. Uh, this is from the New Republic. And again, we post links to all of these articles on our page, weeklyrev.org. This is uh, an article from Melissa Aguilar-Grant from March 2nd. This is how sex workers win. The mainstreaming of sex work is work and strong decriminalization policy proposals are signs of the movement's success. What comes next? So it's a bit of a, a long article. I'm not going to be able to read it today, but if you'd like to check it out, please do. Uh, so you can find it at weeklyrev.org. Uh, probably up there in the next hour or so. Also, next we have uh, Protect Trans Kids Toolkit, and this is particularly in regards to Alabama. This was updated on Tuesday, March 2nd. SB 10 passed 23 to 4 in the Senate with no amendments and is now on its way to the House. Please read below to find, uh, find and contact your respective lawmakers regarding HB 1, the House Companion Bill. So this is a tool toolkit for virtual participants. It was originally created on March 2nd. This is a Google Doc. We'll also provide a link because it's a Google Doc on our page, weeklyrev.org. The overview is that House Bill 1 and Senate Bill 10 would criminalize medical professionals who offer evidence-based gender-affirming treatment to children, require school personnel to, uh, it would require ugh, school personnel to out trans kids to their parents and strip away the parents' right to make decisions under guidance from trained medical professionals that are in the best interest of their children. The companion bills have each passed committee and could be heard by their respective chamber at any time. And so then it says that this unfortunately fucking passed and it's on its way to the House. And uh, House Bill 391 would prevent transgender student athletes from participating in the sports that align with their gender identities and could even prevent Alabama schools from participating for championships at the regional or national level if those championship events allow teams with trans athletes to participate. When this bill was in the House Education Policy Committee on February 24th, a representative from Alabama Athletic Association stated that this legislation is unnecessary. HB 391 is on the House special order calendar for Tuesday. Uh, until now, Alabama legislators have passed legislation in the state house with limited public access without having to confront the lived realities of the people whose lives will be negatively impacted by these bills. All of that changes on Tuesday. To participate in person, RSVP at the Facebook event here, and they have a link. For those who are unable to participate in person, please use the toolkit below to join in virtually. So uh, there are lots of ways that folks can show up. There's a, they have an introduction. They have sample tweets, sample graphics, as well as a contact list. It's a pretty thorough document, um, whether you're in Alabama or not, if you're a parent of a trans person, if you are a trans person, any, uh, if you're a medical provider, uh, if you're any, 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 yes, uh, any combination of those, um so yeah oh yes so it's a really uh thorough list and toolkit so we'll be providing a link to this on our webpage at weeklyrev.org if you click on today's march 5th there will be a link for the protect trans kids toolkit and that'll be up later today okay Whew. all right um and also, uh, a rally that's coming up on April 3rd, if you go to uh, Bayview, sfbayview.com, National Freedom Movement calls 1 million families for parole rally April 3rd, and this is uh, happening at 1 p.m. Pacific time. 
and their article that accompanies this is from Bayview uh, newspaper, and I'll read a little bit about this. This is by Benu Hannibal Rawson. To all held captive in U.S. prisons, jails, and detention facilities in the United States of America and around the world, we are the National Freedom Movement, NFM. We are building our leadership from the incarcerated community in local, state, and federal institutions throughout America. We are organizing from behind enemy lines with the support of activists, advocates, and our loved ones. We declare in unity that on April 3rd, 2021, our brother Peace Justice of Georgia issued a call for a 1 million families for parole rally. The NFM is supporting this call to action as part of our hashtag a pathway to freedom. The NFM, just like Brother Peace Justice, is demanding change to the parole system around the nation, which includes implementation of our reuniting families, rebuilding people and communities parole justice bill. Our parole justice bill would reinstate federal parole and establish objective mandatory parole criteria for every parole eligible individual. The only pathways to freedom that we will ever see are those that we create ourselves. Parole, like many components of the criminal justice system, has become politicized, has become a politicized institution that is controlled by investors, segments of the financial sector, prison guard unions, and private business interests. Legislation like the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, the Truth in Sentencing Act of 1998, and the Crime Bill of 1994 forced states to enact legislation that facilitated keeping prisons filled beyond capacity with no way out. Parole boards across the country are denying paroles at alarming rates with the intent of keeping prisons filled for political and financial interests. Boards are exercising their unlimited discretion to deny parole no matter the qualifications or readiness to re-enter society of the person being considered. This arbitrary and abusive exercise of discretion has now become even more deadly during the COVID-19 pandemic. During the tough on crime and war on drugs era, the federal government enacted legislation like the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, the Truth and Sentencing Act of 1998, and the Crime Bill of 1994 that forced states to enact legislation that facilitated keeping prisons filled beyond capacity with no way out. These laws abolished federal parole and mandated that states scale back parole eligibility standards and grant rates. In addition, these federal laws incentivized states to create violent offender classifications, 85% laws, and more punitive parole boards that made early release on parole almost non-existent. This call for unity extends to all. We have to, to apply pressure to on the federal and state governments to enact legislation to undo the damage caused by their war, quote-unquote, war on drugs. The NFM is challenging parole and many other aspects of the prison industrial slave complex, but we have to be united if we are to be successful. We cannot allow ourselves to be divided by race, geography, class, national origin, affiliation, or any of the many other divisive strategies used by our captors to keep us from realizing our demands for freedom. As part of our parole initiative and April 3rd, 2021 event, we demand the following. One, we demand that federal parole be immediately reinstated. Two, we demand the creation of a mandatory parole criteria and curriculum based on the specific educational, rehabilitative, and reentry needs of every parole-eligible person. The National Freedom Movement can be reached at one national freedom movement at gmail.com uh core links invites accepted send our brother some love and light melvin ray 
163343 St. Clair CF 1000 Street. Oh, excuse me, 1000 St. Clair Road, Springfield, Alabama 35146. And we'll share the article with all this information on our page at weeklyrev.org. And with that, it is 146. So we are going to wrap up here. We're going to play some more music. And we'll be back next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, check out weeklyrev.org as well as meetnewradio.fm. There are shows here every day of the week. If you're interested in doing a show here of your own, please do check that out because there are lots of opportunities. Thanks so much and have a great weekend.
the infinite is the continuum in continuation. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth